coming to you from the Woodland Baptist Ministry Center, home of the Woodland Baptist Church, on the 15th of October, 2023. Are you thirsty? As most of you know, our daughter and son-in-law and their family has moved to North Carolina, and they're looking for a place to, to find as a home. And they found this piece of property, pretty much met their needs, and when they went to put an offer on it, they found out a little down in the corner in the small print, something about the water. Evidently, the daughter, the sister lives in this lower house and the brother lived in the upper house and the upper house was a separate property with a spring and the spring water then also fed the lower house. And the lower house was the one for sale. And when the house went on the market, the brother says, I'm going to stop supplying the water to this lower house. It was fine when my sister lived there, but somebody else is going to live there. I'm not going to do it. So basically, they were selling the house without any water supply. Needless to say, the value of the house went substantially down. We went to another place, and it also had a spring that fed uh, the property, but the spring wasn't on the property. So one of the first things you know we checked, do we have water rights? And yes, there was water rights there too. But we're still in process looking for places for them to, to live. But it drew our attention to the fact that how important water was on, and having it available if you're going to live. I like old Westerns. Maybe you've watched like Wagon Train or Rawhide. Wagon Train, of course, they're moving across the Southwest, and they're trying to get out to California. Or in Rawhide, they're driving a herd of cattle across the country. And one of the constant themes in both of those stories is, how do we get from here to the next place where water is? We gotta have water to live. We gotta have it to drink. We have gotta have it for the cows. We gotta have it. And we know the truth, that water is life-sustaining. Water is life-sustaining. And you go, well, that's not too brilliant of a revelation, but it makes a point. We know that we can only go maybe a couple minutes without air. We can go only a couple days without water. We can go much longer without food than we can without water. But we know that water is necessary if life is going to be sustained. One of the things that I have run across in doing like hospital visits and things like that is how often a person will end up in the hospital not because they have some other great issue but that issue has triggered the fact that they stopped taking in water. 
And pretty soon they're in the hospital, why? Severely dehydrated. And one of the first things that they treat that with is, are you guess it? Water. <laughs> and so we understand that water is life sustaining. We wanna draw a picture here that moves beyond physical water. And let's, let's turn to the passage that uh, Mike was gracious enough to read uh, to us. And that's about the woman in the well at John at the well in John chapter four, verses seven through 15. Actually, it's a much larger passage, but Jesus is traveling with his disciples and they're going from Jerusalem which is in the south, to up to his home country in Nazareth, up in the north. And in the area in between those two places was Samaria. So you have Mediterranean Sea over here. You have Judea down here. You have Samaria. And then up in the northern area, you had the other tribes of Israel. A Jew in the time of Jesus, when when they would travel, is they would travel and go inland from, let's say, the area of Jerusalem over to um, the Jordan River and then travel up along the Jordan River and then go back in inland and bypass Samaria. Samaria was to be avoided because Samaria had, are you ready for this? Samaritans. And Samaritans were those Jews who, like during the time of the Assyrian captivity, had intermarried with other countries and other peoples, and they were seen as the half-breeds. And they, pure Jew, wouldn't have anything to do with them. And the feeling was mutual. And Jesus says, I must needs go through Samaria. And one of the first things that happened in Jesus' ministry is recorded here in John chapter 4 when they travel up to uh, through Samaria and they come to Sychar, a well, and, and Jesus sends the disciples into town and out comes a woman in midday to draw well water. Now, we know this story pretty well. A woman wouldn't normally come in the middle of the day. They would come in the cool of the morning when the weather was not so hot, beating down on you. Because if you're gonna love water, which is not lightweight, you're gonna want to do any labor like that in the cool of the day. She was there because she was pretty much an outcast among her own people. So you have a Jew, Jesus, sitting at the well. You had a Samaritan who was there, who would naturally be an enemy of Jesus by culture and all. And yet she was a woman who would normally talk with a Jew. And she was a despised outcast Samaritan woman. And so you have this great contrast between Jesus and this woman. And Jesus then, as we saw in this passage, asked this woman 
for a drink of water. Now, you get the response, and I hope this, this sentence now has a little more meaning to you when she says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. So there's sharp contrast going on here at the well, and it's just the two of them talking. Jesus answers, says, If you knew the gift of God, who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given to you living water. And so we see something is going on here that he's not talking about necessarily the thing that is life-sustaining, which is physical water. He's talking about something else. The woman hasn't got it yet. The woman says, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He's the one that gave us this well, drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock. In other words, she goes, let's keep this real. You promise living water, whatever that is, but this well requires something to get water out of the well, and you don't have anything like that. You, you don't have any tools that way. And Jesus then makes something clear. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. You ever had water? And you swore it off. You're never going to have another drink, right? No. He was speaking to the common experience that we all have. You drink water, you're going to want some more. Okay? And so Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. And the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He says, and the woman said to, her, to him, Sir, give me this water so that I, I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She's thinking, wouldn't it be wonderful if I never had to be thirsty for water? I mean, you could drink it if you wanted to, but to have to have water, that would be something. And they said, and you can almost hear her saying, we'll put the, we'll put the uh, modern slant on it. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you could just have a tap in your house? You know, something that we experience and we know. But she says, I don't want to trudge out here to the, to the well and have to draw water day in and day out for all my needs. That stuff is heavy, it's hard to carry, it's, and it's hot work, and I don't want to do it. This would be great if I had some other source. So we come to the second principle. We know that water is life-sustaining, but water is also used in Scripture to describe or to picture spiritual health. Spiritual health. So we have this question then of Jesus putting this for this woman. Would you like some water? Would you like some living water? And she's still thinking on the physical plane. Yes, I'd like to drink water. 
And he says, that's not what I'm talking about. And so what does he do? He starts talking about his, her marital relations and says, go call your husband. Well, I've had five. <laughs> and he goes, right, they said, and the one you're with is not your husband now. And she's discerning now that we have made a change in the conversation and we're talking about completely different matters than quenching our physical thirst. And so he gets into a discussion about worship. And you go, how do you get from water drawn from a well to worship? Because we're talking about spiritual health now. We're talking about spiritual life now, not just physical life. It says, God is spirit in verse 24, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And she goes, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. He says, you know about the Messiah? Here I am. Just then the disciples come back and they get in on the tail end of this conversation. And they're going, what? He's talking to a Samaritan. You can almost say, he, ta he's talking to a Samaritan woman. <laughs> but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking to her? They, they weren't saying that to him. They were saying it among themselves. So a woman left her water jar, went into the city and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out to find out this truth. That there was one who offered living water. And the issue is much more important than even physical water. And we know physical water is life-sustaining. If it's more important than physical water, what does that make? This living water. It's critical for life, spiritually. So we want to transition then to another discussion surrounding water in the life of Christ. And it has to do with the Feast of Tabernacles. Feast of Tabernacles was celebrated yearly as one of the critical feasts in which the people of the nation would gather together. Uh, once Jerusalem, in the time of Christ, was where the temple was, and they would gather together. It was known as the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, either way. Uh, both references to the same thing. It was a seven-day long feast. And what they would do is actually create little booths almost like setting up tents, only it was made out of branches and, and, and leaves and things like that that they would cover up. And it had to be uh, at least three-sided, walls on three-sided, and they would camp out there. You can imagine how kids would love that. Okay, they travel into Jerusalem, so all the surrounding areas is overpopulated with people, and they made all these booths in their People are hanging out everywhere, okay? And it's a time of national celebration, so much so that of all the different feasts, if someone mentioned, are you going to be at the feast, 
They wouldn't guess another feast. They would guess this feast. That's how, how uh, common it was to talk about, how common it was to participate in, and how much the people enjoyed. It was this time of year. In fact, this year, the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths fell when? September 29th to October 6th, just about a week ago. And we go, what happened in Israel in the last week or so? They were attacked at the time of this great feast. Okay? So the Jews' mind were, was on something else. And this is when they would have been attacked. This would have been this time of year. This would be the time when harvest would have come in. And so it was a place of celebration, a time of rejoicing. It was a, a, a time of looking back to when the Jews traveled from Egypt and they were in tents and they moved to the promised land. And so this would be a reminder of what that was about. And one of the things that had to do with water was a couple of experiences they had along the road. And so I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 17. In Exodus 17, in talking about this journey, we come to an incident that happened out in the wilderness. Now, when they're traveling, we're talking about not just 10 or 20 or 50 or 100 people. We're talking about maybe close to almost a million people. A large-sized city, but it's on the road, okay? And so they're traveling, and they're out in the desert. So what do you think they need? Water. I, I know you wouldn't be surprised, right? And in chapter 17, it said all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped in Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Remember I telling you the stories about rawhide and you move from water hole to water hole? Well, they're out there where there's no water hole. And so the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? And why do you test the Lord? Didn't the Lord bring you out of Egypt? Didn't he deliver you through the Red Sea? Hasn't he provided for you? Remember, there was a cloud by, by day and a pillar of fire by night. Most people, when you think of the desert, think, oh man, it gets hot during the day. It does. But it gets cold at night. Because there's nothing, no clouds to hold the heat down. And it goes, and you can go from hot, hot, hot to cold, cold, cold. And what did the Lord provide? Cloud by day. A pillow of fire by night. Better than any heat pump that we could design, right? Took care of all that. And so they cry out to Moses and they said, uh, give us water to drink. He says, why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses. Listen to how, 
how their thinking took them. Having become thirsty out in the desert, they go, why did you bring us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Was this your plan all along to bring us up out of Egypt, bring us out into the wilderness, and then see us die and turn to parched bones? Is that what they're thinking? And Moses cried out to the Lord in verse 4, What shall I do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, taking your hand the staff which you struck in the Nile, and go. And behold, I will stand before you there in the, in the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So what is the Lord's provision? He says, just take that staff and strike the rock, and I'll provide water. I'll provide water. Now, how much water had to come out of that rock? You go, would an eight-ounce glass suffice? No. And how many people were there? A million people, possibly. You go, there was a lot of water coming out of that rock. But the people drank. And they were satisfied. Well, that happened once. Then we move over to the book of Numbers. And if you go to Numbers chapter 20, the people, again, are back at the place of, of thirsting and complaining. And the the assembly of people came and they said, uh, what are we going to do in verse 3 of chapter 20? Would that we have perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you done, you made us come out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? There's no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates and there's no water to drink. Man, how we remember things, how we remember things. What was it like for the Jews when they were in Egypt? They were under bondage. They were building buildings for the Egyptians. They were slave labor. And now they're out and free from that. And they don't remember any of that. What they remember is, oh, we had an opportunity to get some figs and pomegranates. So they cry out to Moses again. In verse 7, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before the eyes of the, uh, to yield its water. So you should bring water out of the rock for them and give water to the congregation, to their cattle. Because remember, they're not only putting water to the people, their feet, there's water for all the cattle. Moses took the staff 
And in verse 10 it says, And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank in their livestock. Moses, though, didn't do what didn't do what God had said. God said, speak. And God and Moses struck the rock twice. It was going to pay a big price. Moses wasn't going to be able to go into the Holy Land, into the Promised Land. So what we see here then is God providing water again. We come to our next story, and that is, or our truth, spiritual life-giving water is a provision of the Lord alone. Just like the water in, in the desert was life-giving and it was provided by God, it was provided by Him alone. They looked around and they said, there's no source of water. How are we going to live? And God said, I'll provide it out of the rock. All you have to do is speak and it'll come forth. So we come back to the New Testament story that surrounds the Feast of Tabernacles, which I mentioned before. And that was the celebration of the Jews traveling and they set up booths to celebrate for a week. And on the last day of the week, what they did of celebration is the priest would go down to the Pool of Siloam. Well, in the city of Jerusalem, the, the temple was sort of on a little rise, and the Pool of Siloam was due south, and it was downhill. And so the priest would go down, draw water from the Pool of Siloam, and carry it back in a big pro procession, and all the people would fall. And they would get up to the place where they would come into the temple area, and then they would walk around the altar seven times. And as they walked around the altar, they would, they would quote a passage. And the passage had to do with God's gracious provision. And in Psalm 118.25, they would quote this. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. In other words, as they would hold up this water and they would march around, they would be remembering the fact that God had provided water in the wilderness. But on the account in John chapter 7, and I invite you to turn there, in John chapter 7, Jesus takes advantage of this situation and the priests now are around, going around the altar, and they're, they're quoting this passage about, Lord, save us, we pray. And Jesus interrupts. And I gave you all this background so you can see the potency of what Jesus is about to say. And in John chapter 7, verse 37, it says, On the last day of the feast, that's the Feast of Tabernacles, 
the great day, this is the, the high point of the celebration, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. You see the significance? They were thirsty in the land, and as they traveled, there was no water. And who provided it? The Lord provided it. And now they're celebrating and remembering, and Jesus stands up right there at that point in the service and says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. We see the application then of the spiritual truth. Water is used in Scripture to picture spiritual health, and it's a life-giving spiritual water is a provision by the Lord himself alone. They were doing remembrance, and he stands up and he says, like he did to the woman at the well, you want spiritual life? It's sourced in me. It's sourced in me. Not going to do it any other way. So we have these great pictures of spiritual life provided by the Lord. And I probably should stop there because that's a good high note to stop on. But that isn't what got me started in this study. What got me in this study was a passage that I read in Jeremiah. So I invite you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. Let me give you the backstory here. Jeremiah was a prophet that turned out to be hated by most of the people. But he was commissioned by God to be God's spokesman at a time when the nation was completely off the rails. They should have been following the Lord. They weren't. God's chosen people who had been delivered time and time and time again had gone through all these experiences that we have been talking about. Not only been delivered from Egypt, but carried and protected in the wilderness, brought into the promised land. His enemies had been defeated, and God had seen, overseen their victories time and time and time again. It had been a miraculous provisions. And in the first two chapters of Jeremiah, he's recounting this. And he's, and he's talking about how the people have seen all these things in God's gracious provision. And yet, they had turned away from following the living God to idols. And over and over again, the prophets would speak about idols. He says, isn't it interesting? You'll take a hunk of wood and you'll split the wood 
And half of it you'll put over here. And half of it you'll put over here. And this half you'll take and you will carve it into an idol and put it on the mantle. And this half you'll throw it in the fireplace because it's wood, right? You need it fire, so put it in the fireplace. And this part you will bow down and worship. And you go, does that make sense? You took a piece of wood and carved it into an idol. And now you have turned to the idol as if it's going to do anything for you. And so in chapter 2, and those that have been in our Sunday school class, you'll notice chapter 2 is all in poetry. He said, what wrong did, I, did your fathers find in me, verse 5, that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and become worthless? In other words, he said, you had everything. You had me. And you turned from me. Why? Why did you do that? And they did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in the land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through, where no man dwells. And you brought us into a plentiful land and enjoyed its fruits and good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. He says, I provided all this stuff. And you get here and you go, we don't need God anymore. Nah. We can just go and do our thing. And they turn to idols. And the priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. He says, none of this was profitable to them. And they continued to do it. He says, therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord. And with your children's children, I will contend. But I want you to look at verse 12. And this is the pronouncement of the Lord. In verse 12, he said, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. The Lord says, you ought to be aghast at this. Appalled, the idea of you are struck with awe. At, at this is something that has taken your breath away. It should take your breath away that you would turn away from me. You should be shocked. Literally, it was, it's uh, the idea of bristle and horror. That it says like we would use the phrase that hairs in the back of your neck should stand up because of what you what has happened here that you have turned from the living God. And he says, and you are utterly desolate. And there is a picture of a city in ruins. And he says, what's your reaction? What's your reaction to the fact that I have provided all these things and you have turned from me. Are you shocked? Or are you just blase about the whole thing? Doesn't mean anything. You know, whether we trust in God or don't trust in God doesn't really mean anything. 
And then he paints this word picture. He says, more, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. On the front of your bulletin is a picture of Masada. It is a place in Israel where the Jews actually take their soldiers to um, enlist them and have them swear allegiance to serve. And they did it on Masada because it, it was a great historical place where um, the Maccabees withstood the power and might of, of the Romans. But Herod picked that place to be uh, his retreat, we would, with, like Camp David would be for our president. Masada was the place where Herod went to retreat. And if you look on the picture on the left as it sort of steps down, that was actually where Herod's palace was at Masada. And in that was a place where they dug cisterns. Now, what did they use cisterns for? Water. You got to have something that catches water. And if you are up on Masada today, you will see cut into the rock, it looks like little gutters all around. So anytime there was a storm, the water would run into these gutters, run down the gutters and into the cistern so that you could live on this hilltop, on this plateau, even in an arid place because you would capture water and have it available. Now water in cisterns is stale. When we think of refreshing water, we think of aerated water that is maybe like a stream bubbling or whatever. We, we like that. Listen to what the Lord says. You have committed two evils. You have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. He says it's bad enough that you would depend on cisterns when you had me. But look what happens when you need that cistern to provide life-sustaining life. Oops, it has a crack, it leaked, and there's no water. And that's how he pictured their spiritual condition. He says, you turned from me, and I was a fountain of living water. This, this whole idea of refreshing and cool and good water that I was providing for you, and you turn from that, and you turn to your cisterns, which you have dug, you have made provision for yourself, and yet they, they leak and they hold no water. And when you need them the most, they fail you. And he used this illustration to talk about their worship of idols. You made these idols, you said, oh, we'll worship them. But when you need help, when you need the provisions of life, what do these idols do? 
Yeah, exactly that. Nothing. They do nothing for you. And so the common, common commendation, not the commendation, the condemnation is that you have chosen what was life-giving and what it was best for you, and you have refused and gone off and doing your own thing and found out in time that it was worthless. And so we come to the last point. Woe to anyone who would trade the Lord's provision for worthless, worthless efforts. What would it take to get water out of the rock? Ask. <coughs> Moses was told, just ask. And water will come out. But what did you do? You said, no, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to dig a pit. And we're going to capture water. And then we're going to live off it. And when you finally needed some water, it was cracked. And all the water was gone. And you had nothing. So was that a good trade? No. So what about the application to us? What are we turning to? What are we depending on? Our own efforts, our own, our own thoughts about how things should go. That's what the Jews did. And the warning of, of Jeremiah to the people was, you have hewn broken cisterns as opposed to taking advantage of God's gracious provision. All you had to do was ask this one who has proved himself over and over and over again. So the question I have for you and the question I have for me is what are we relying on? What are we relying on? Are we trusting God's gracious provision to see him miraculously meet our needs? Or we go back through life saying, I'll figure it out. I'll do it my way. I'm sure it'll come out okay. Only to find out when we need it the most, won't be there. I did this memorial service yesterday, and as I was thinking about all the ones that were there, I wondered how many people here have broken, self-hewn cisterns of life, and one day, when they need it most, when they are going to pass from this world and go off into eternity, they're going to find out that they have a broken cistern. And what they needed the most, they didn't have any of. And how many who are there have put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and weren't dependent upon their own efforts and their own labors and their own goodness, but were completely dependent upon the Lord. And they enter into eternity with hope, promise, and life. The question that stands before us all the time, and that's why the, the passage in Jeremiah stood out, stood out so much to me, because these were people who knew better. The Jews knew better. It wasn't a person off the streets. This, these were God's chosen people, and they still had refused to follow the Lord. Let it be a warning to all of us. 
What choices we make? Who are we following? What are we depending upon? The Lord says, people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. They have left me. They have abandoned me. The one who is the fountain of living water. And they have hewn out cisterns for themselves. They, they did their own thing. Broken cisterns that cannot hold any water. Choice is ours, isn't it? How do we choose to choose? Do we follow the Lord, depend on Him for His gracious provision, or we go our own way and find out in the end when we need it the most that it was no help whatsoever? Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for the teachings of, of the Lord Jesus when He he interrupted the Feast of Tabernacles and called people to himself so that they could find living water. We thank you for the warning of Jeremiah in the Old Testament who warned the children of Israel and by application us that we ought not to turn to the things of our own making but to your gracious provision and have life. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.